It's Wednesday, October 17th, and this is The Daily Dive. The Department of Health and Human Services has formally rolled out a proposal that would require drug companies to include the list prices of drugs in their TV ads, similar to the way they disclose side effects. These price disclosures would only have to be made in text and not voiceovers. Sam Baker, healthcare editor for Axios, joins us for all the details and how the pharma industry plans to fight back. Next, we all know the big problem that climate change poses to the earth, but now it's gone too far. Droughts and heat waves will hurt barley crops, likely doubling the price of beer in the coming decades. Ireland and other European countries would likely see the biggest price increases, but the U.S. would also be affected. Dan Vergano, science reporter for BuzzFeed News, joins us for what to know about climate change and your beer. Finally, an influx of thefts have been targeting car owners, more specifically, Honda owners. Criminals are increasingly stealing airbags out of late model Hondas and then reselling them to questionable repair shops and unsuspecting online customers. Nathan Bomey, business reporter for USA Today, joins us for where these thefts are happening and how costly the repairs can be. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We think it's critical that patients who are being pitched these medicines and being asked to go talk to their doctor about these drugs, that while they currently get the medical efficacy and safety concern information in the ads, they're not being told the price of the very medicine that they're being asked to have a discussion about. And that list price, we think, ought to be in the ads. Joining us now is Sam Baker, healthcare editor for Axios. The Department of Health and Human Services formally rolled out a proposal that would require drug companies to include their products list prices in their TV ads, similar to the way they disclose side effects. But they're trying to get something like that similar with their prices. What do we know about this proposal? It is a very controversial proposal on a couple of levels. Obviously, the pharmaceutical industry doesn't like it, so it's controversial there. There are also a lot of independent experts not aligned with the industry who question how much it will really help and how bit of an idea it is, because the price that they're going to have to disclose here is is essentially the sticker price. So pharmaceutical companies set that price, and then insurance companies come in and negotiate the price down. So there's a lot of concern in the industry, but also just from some objective observers that say, you know, you're going to put a price up there that is higher than what most people have to pay and give people an impression of this, that, that a drug might cost them more than it really will. Right. Once insurance kicks in, Medicare or Medicaid, the price could be different for pretty much everybody. So that price that they're going to throw up there could be pretty inaccurate just right off the bat. What are some of the details of how they have to do this? Because I think they want to have it in text. You don't have to necessarily do a voiceover of the price. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Which I think is partly because the industry has signaled pretty clearly that it might challenge this in court as a, it's called compelled speech. The idea that the government can't, or at least has to meet a really high bar when it forces you to say something. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, putting they, it in text is sort of a way to make it a little bit less burdensome. Okay. You don't have to use three or four of your 30 seconds to make that thing. Right. And it, because some of what I was seeing was saying that if they do challenge it legally, it would be on first, on a first amendment basis. So this is this notion of forcing them to have to say it basically. That's right. And I've talked to legal experts who think that that's a pretty decent claim, and legal experts who think, no, this is probably the kind of thing the government can make you say. 
What is the pharmaceutical industry saying? Because they, they said that they wanted to offer some type of compromise where they would point people to the website and say, you can find all the price listing there. But the administration was not going for that. They don't want that at all. They have encouraged pharma to come to the table. And the HHS secretary, Alex Azar, has said in public speeches, pharma be part of the solution, give me a call. We'll do it voluntarily if we can. You know, he's a Republican, he's a conservative. He doesn't want to regulate more than he has to. But the proposal of the industry came out with, as you said, it was just, well, we'll put something up, flash it up there, no real clear standards, nothing uniform that says, go to the drugs website, which is a marketing <laughs> website for pricing information. And HHS said, yeah, it's not going to cut it. You got to put the actual price. In. Right. And then the price that they're talking about also specifically is either for the 30-day cost of taking the drug or a typical course of treatment, as they call it. So it's not individual price of a pill or something like that. Right. It's essentially how much it would cost you to either go fill a prescription or if it's one of these drugs administered over a, a course that isn't just a monthly maintenance medication, how much that would cost. There's also critics that say that putting the price on the television ads wouldn't even do anything, that these pharmaceutical industry uh, companies have no shame and the price is the price and they're not going to do it. And but, you know, we see how everybody gets worked up over it when uh, Martin Shkreli, big in the news last couple years, when he raised the price of uh, that one drug that he took over. I mean, everybody was outraged. How could you raise the prices so much? So putting the price out there could help lower prices. But a lot of people saying that it might not even do anything. Martin Shkreli is a great example. He raised the price of that drug. Hundreds of a percentage, so, yeah. But it was huge, yeah. He's since gone to jail for unrelated crimes. He doesn't own that drug anymore. The price is the same. The price never came down wow. from where he set it. There is some reason to believe that forcing drug companies to shame themselves in this way will not make a big dent. What else is the administration working on to lower the prices of prescription drugs? Because I know the president had made it a point to say that they're addressing it, but uh, I haven't seen much in the form. This is the first thing that I've kind of taken notice of, the direction that they're trying to get action in. This is the biggest one by far. They have done other things. HHS really is moving forward on the plan that they announced a couple months ago. Some of those things are small. They're complicated. They're programmatic changes to the Medicare program. That doesn't mean that they won't have an effect, but they're just things that people in my world get more worked up about, <laughs> right. you know, because they don't kind of spill over into the public as much. This is the biggest one, and it's the first one that has taken on the pharmaceutical companies head on. Yeah, and it could end up, uh, you know, in the courts being settled there. I think they want to wait till all the rules are set before they challenge it. It's just a proposal right now. When, if at all, is this supposed to take effect? So you're right. It's a proposal right now. That has to sit out there so that members of the public and industry, whoever wants to, can comment on it. Uh, that takes 60 days. HHS will read those comments. They will then issue a what's called a final rule, taking into account any helpful feedback that they received, and then the proposal would take effect 90 days after that. So we're looking at about three months, maybe a little bit longer before this would start to show up, unless, of course, a court intervenes right. and puts it on hold in the meantime. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out to see how this all develops. Sam Baker, healthcare editor for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Northern Europe is gets the biggest hit because they'll have to import the most barley to, to make the beer. And 
the U.S. consumption drops and price goes up, but not as much as other places because barley production starts moving north into Canada further, so we don't lose as much supply. Joining us now is Dan Vergano, science reporter for BuzzFeed News. We're going to be talking about uh, this latest report about climate change. We all know it's a big problem, but now it's gone a little too far, maybe. There's bad news for beer drinkers. They're saying that droughts and heat waves driven by global warming are going to be hurting barley crops and it will likely double the price of beer in the coming decades. In some cases, triple the price of beer. I think Ireland gets hit the worst on that one. What do we know about this new report? Well, this is really like a one in a series of reports trying to look at how climate change is going to hurt food production. So they looked at a lot of grains and they're finally getting the barley and the guys doing it said, what did barley and beer, they kind of go together. So let's add an economic model for beer into this thing and see what happens with climate climate change. And the results are interesting in that what they decided looking at the analysis was that the extreme years, which don't happen every year under climate change, are the ones that really make a difference in terms of the price of beer and how much is going to be around. It's the years where you have extreme droughts and heat waves knocking out, you know, sort of these sort of continental size areas at the same time where most of the barley is produced in the world. And they said they wanted to use barley specifically because it would show people kind of the real world effects of climate change because everybody drinks beer or, you know, a lot of people drink beer. It would give them something more concrete to hold on to. Climate change, a lot of people, "Ah, it doesn't affect me or I don't care or something like that. But if you mess with their beer, then, you know, they're more likely to kind of believe it or want to make some change because of it. Right. It's an international team from uh, Chinese Academy of Sciences and uh, universities in the UK and in the US and University of California. And yeah, my sense is that they are. Are in fact, people who do like a beer and uh, were wondering about this question. <laughs> they said also that consumption could drop in some countries because the price would be getting too high. Some of this barley is the same barley that we feed to livestock. They would have to use that barley for the livestock and not so much for beer production. So they're saying that a consumption would also go down as a result of this. It's a kind of complicated economic model, but essentially what they're arguing is that cattle are expensive, and so the farmers are going to feed the barley to the cattle so they don't lose them, and so there's going to be less barley to sell, and the price for it is going to go up, and as a result, the price of beer goes up, and when the price goes up for something and the supply goes down, then people drink less of it. In that sense, it's not too complicated. You know, I did talk to climate scientists who said, yeah, you know, sure, of course it'll go up in those years. It'll be the same thing for any other commodity. The work they did is coupling the climate model to the economic model for barley to the beer model is sort of what's new here with this. And who are the countries that are going to be affected by this the most? I know Ireland, like I said, could see triple prices of beer, but where are the other countries and where does the U.S. fare in this? Northern Europe gets the biggest hit because they'll have to import the most barley to make the beer. And the U.S. consumption drops and price goes up, but not as much as other places because barley production starts moving north into Canada further, so we don't lose as much supply. Uh, barley is imported and exported widely, and that was incorporated in the model, but you know it really helps in terms of price to have the stuff nearby. What's been the reaction from other groups or you know beer trade groups? I know the Brewers right. Association was one of them that said, hey, you know, this is an ap- academic exercise. Don't believe all the hype. Nothing to lose sleep over. And they also say, you know, that farmers would be adapting as things would happen. You know, they'd shift barley growing to other parts where they can still get good yields. But So what's been the reaction out of other people outside of the study? You've summarized the beer industry's reaction pretty nicely. <laughs> yeah, they said we're on top of this thing. There was a drought in the Pacific Northwest last year that affected barley production. And so we're all aware of this and worrying about it. And that's all nice. But some of the people who look at sort of large scale farming say that, you know, these are changes that are going to be happening on continent wide scales. And it is going to affect crops when you have droughts. And 
heat waves, we can engineer for things like drought resistance, but that actually might change the nutrient profile of the barley, which might change the taste of the beer or, you know, it's what's in it. And you can engineer for drought resistance, but heat resistance is a tough one. And heat is the thing that's going on all the time with climate change. And that might change these very basic chemical reactions that are going on in barley that make barley barley. And so that's why you have to move it north to farm it. And, you know, you run out of north after a while and it becomes more expensive to do that sort of thing. You're competing with other crops. So the people who study these things on an agricultural economics basis are not as sanguine as the industry. On the other hand, you know, people like beer and the industry is a pretty innovative one in some ways. So, you know, maybe they will get on top of it. It just shows it's not cheaper, though, than like not having to worry about it. Yeah, I think it's just pretty funny how quickly this story went viral. You know, obviously climate change, a lot of people are always attuned to that. But you throw in beer. One of the authors of the study even said, not sure what to make of the fact that in one day, our paper on climate and beer has garnered considerably more attention than any of their previous work on energy transitions, air pollution, deaths, anything other than that. You know, it's like this, you know, you're messing with my beer and, you know, everybody's like interested in it right away. Dan Vergano, science reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. What the authorities believe happens is the thief steals the airbag and then ends up selling it either online to someone who's unsuspecting and doesn't realize they're buying a black market airbag, or they sell it to an auto body shop, a disreputable shop that then installs it as new to an unsuspecting customer. Joining us now is Nathan Bomey, business reporter for USA Today. Criminals are stealing airbags out of late model Hondas mostly that require airbag replacements. A lot of people uh, are making the connection, assuming that it might be related to the Takata airbag recall. This is happening all over the place. We don't know why. Unfortunately, it seems to be targeting Hondas mostly. But what do we know about this uh, recent thefts of airbags? Yeah, it's really interesting. When I kind of stumbled upon this and started investigating, realized that there has been a significant spike in airbag thefts. And every incident I looked at was a Honda. We're talking pretty much 2012 and later vehicles, specifically the Civic and Accord have been targeted. And the reason is, is because airbags are very valuable. In fact, I've covered the auto industry for, for years and didn't quite realize how costly they are. An average airbag can be about $1,000, but then the labor to repair it can take the price above $2,000. And so there's a significant financial incentive for thieves to target these parts. If you go through insurance, it could be those $2,000, $3,000, whatever, but you also have to pay your deductible to the consumer, to the person who got robbed. It's a bunch of money that you have to shell out just to, just to replace that one thing. What the authorities believe happens is the thief steals the airbag and then ends up selling it either online to someone who's unsuspecting and doesn't realize they're buying a black market airbag, or they sell it to a, a auto body shop, a disreputable shop that then replace, installs it as sort of new, portrays it as new to an unsuspecting customer. And then what that auto body shop might then do is file an insurance claim, which would of course be a fraudulent insurance claim to then get the full price paid back. So that's how it works. And you know, this is it organized crime? Is it, Are these one-off thieves? Or it's difficult to say because no one's tracking this on the national scale. Right. I mean, the National Insurance Crime Bureau believes about 50,000 airbags get stolen every year, but no one's exactly sure how many are happening. Yeah, I mean, that's the hugest problem. You list off a, a number of different organizations, all that do not really track this stuff. So it's hard to find a trend or, you know, maybe spikes are happening in other states where they're just not reporting it the same way. A lot of times they're not even tracking airbag 
thefts. It's just a general theft and, you know, things were stolen. And they're also targeting just the driver's side airbag because they're likelier to go off in a crash or something like that. Whereas right. some of the other airbags, they might be a little more difficult to access and they're just not the big money makers that these ones are. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, obviously your average driver's side airbag, there's always someone in the driver's seat. So if the driver is in an accident, then that one's definitely going to go off. And so those are the ones that most often need to be replaced. But yeah, I, I think, you know, if you look at some of the major markets that I explored, Miami-Dade County, for example, just a few years ago, there was only a handful of airbag thefts in a given year. Last year, there was 800 plus. So that, that shows you that there's been a significant spike there. Other markets in Florida dealing with this, the Washington, D.C. C area has had a spike of it, which is where I'm located in New York City. I talked to a woman in Los Angeles who faced this, so definitely major markets, but you're right. I think there are other areas probably where it's happening and we and we haven't heard about it. Officials are urging people not to make connections to the Takata airbag recall. Why does that line of thinking make sense? Well, it's interesting because when I first heard that Honda airbag, or first understood that Honda airbags were being targeted, I wondered immediately if there was a connection to the Takata airbag recall because Takata was the Japanese supplier that made the exploding airbags that have triggered the largest recall in U.S. history, and Honda was the most affected by that recall. So Honda cars are most likely to have a Takata uh, airbag in them. But what's interesting is that in all the incidents I explored, these vehicles were not modified is affected by that recall. So it was, that was really surprising to me. But then when I talked to experts, they said, you know, one of the reasons may be because the Takata recall has generally increased the price of airbags and then decreased the manufacturing capability of the industry. I mean, the industry is really strained to make enough airbags quickly enough to get them out to consumers. So basically when demand goes up, then there's also demand for the thieves to try to capitalize. What I just don't know is why only Honda. That continues to be a mystery. It might be a design flaw or something that makes sure. it very easily to be, you know, the way you wrote in the article, they're cutting them out basically from the from the steering wheel. So maybe it's just the easy access to it that makes it uh, that much more attractive to steal. Yeah, I've wondered if it's something with regard to that. Correct. Because it's not about Hondas being easy vehicles to steal necessarily because they're not stealing the car. But when you think about it, this is sort of, sort of like getting a laptop stolen. You know, like if your laptop costs $1,000 and you leave it on the car seat and someone breaks it and takes the laptop, this is sort of similar to that where someone takes a part that's worth a thousand or $2,000. So this is very serious. And, you know, although you may have insurance, you know, your deductible ends up still costing you a lot. When I talked to this student in Los Angeles, you know, she had to pay $500 and her deductible is to cost her a lot of money. A lot of this has to do with the shops that are fixing your car. I mean, obviously everybody wants the best price, lowest price that they can get. Is there anything that people can do to look out for or be aware that they're getting the right airbags? Obviously, if the if the dealership or the shop is trying to do something nefarious, you know, you're not going to necessarily know, but is there something that we can do to protect ourselves on that front? I think number one is to make sure you, you never buy an airbag online. It sounds weird, but there are a lot of them for sale on eBay and other sites. Number two is only get it replaced in a certified repair shop or a dealership because if you, if you go to a disreputable shop that's just not, you know, it's kind of doing things on the side, even if you think you might be able to trust them, they may not know what kind of parts they purchased and, and that's just not the kind of place you want to get a critical life-saving part like this fixed. 
lastly, if you really want to go even a step further, you can ask to see the airbag before it gets put into your vehicle. Even though you may not be an expert on this, you may have a sense that something's off. Airbags actually are regulated by the U.S. Department of Transportation because they're an explosive device. They have to be transported in certain conditions, and so they're not going to be like wrapped up in a bunch of bubble wrap or something. And this is a device that actually has you have to take special care to transport. Nathan Bomey, business reporter for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thank you. All right. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.